grab a seat. Hey, welcome to Sedaris. My name is Dave, one of the pastors here. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to those of you who I haven't seen in the last few days. Uh, I'm very, th- very thankful, very thankful for this community, very thankful uh, for all the ways that, that I'm blessed by getting to do life with you and mission with you. Um, so thank you for being who you are uh, and working to not be who you are because, you know, there's parts of you that God wants to redeem and restore and, uh, in me as well. So I hope you're thankful for me, but only in part because you want me to grow. <laughs> okay, so anyhow, uh, awkward transition, but this is a goose, and it's uh, made of gold, clearly. Uh, it's not solid gold, it's just plated with gold, but uh, I just wanted to bring this to your attention. We had a little uh, flag football game this morning, our third annual Chili Bowl. It was quite a competition, a lot of great uh, people. I was going to say athletes, but there was a lot of great people there, and uh, <laughs> it was a really good time. Um, the Stingers won the chili cook-off, so big props to them. Uh, the Golden Goose, you'll see him poke his head into all the important things we do at Sedaris. So um, I don't even, I, I don't know, this Friday we have our first Friday, uh, which happens once a month on the first Friday of every month where we do something just social as a community. We're going ice skating in downtown Seattle. Uh, maybe the Goose will be, we, we never know with this sort of stuff. He's kind of like the Affleck duck. Anytime there's danger, he shows up. So I'm going to hide him behind that. Thanks for being here. Thank you for being who you are and for growing into the fullness of Christ together. And um, we're, we're stepping in here to the third week on this little excursus that we've been doing in the Gospel of Mark. We're still in the Gospel of Mark. And we've been walking through it chapter by chapter. And then for the last three weeks, we've, we've sort of pressed pause on uh, sort of walking through it uh, chronologically, and we've taken a look at three stories that talk about how do we approach the area of finances and money uh, and think about the generosity of God and, and how we respond to that as Christians. And, and we've done that for a couple of reasons. The first reason is Thanksgiving is a great time to, to look at this question. What does thankfulness look like, and, and how do we respond in reality, to our thankfulness for the grace of God and the work of God in our life. And we'll spend some time reflecting on that at the end of the service. And we've also done it just to kind of put all of our cards on the table because uh, we're coming into a very unique season of life as a community. Uh, We're almost three years old. We'll be three years old in February. And ever since we started the church, we've been on a, a financial model which Uh, take some financial resources from those outside of our community, we call them our external donors, and some from inside of our community with our regular tithes and offerings uh, to fund the mission that God's called us to. And it's been on a three-year flip where we started primarily with external givers, and the goal was by the end of three years to be uh, fully funded internally. And we're coming upon the end of that three-year model. Uh, We've done some really great things. In fact, in this year, the goal was to be 30% externally funded and 70% internally funded. And we almost met that goal. We're at about 68% of that goal. But in 2018, the goal is to be 100% internally self-sufficient as a church. And so 
This is a huge thing, to take that next step as a community, as a young community, living in an expensive city, to take that step to take full financial ownership of this mission that God has given to us. And so uh, we've decided for those reasons to, to spend a little bit of time talking about these three stories in the Gospel of Mark that have to do with what Jesus says about generosity and a heart of a generous giver. So that's what we're doing. Um, and we've talked over the last couple weeks about some of the specifics about where we're at as a, as a church and what it looks like to, to make up that gap, which, if you're not a mathlete, is it's about 32% we need to make up, which comes out to be about $7,500 a month in giving. Um, and so that's the gap we have to, to fill in in 2018. So we've, we've got this one-piece uh, handout, and it's sitting on the Connect table. If you're a part of Sedaris, we'd encourage you to just take a look at that. You can see both this NEATO diagram that we have here you can look at that, and, and one of the things we asked you to do, I hope that you did this, one of the things we wanted to do and why we wanted to do it around Thanksgiving is that you experience the joy and the thankfulness, and you thank God for the way he's brought finances into our mission. So we've had 93 individuals who have given money to our mission, 93 individuals that have no part of our community on a regular basis. Uh, they don't get the benefits of being a part of our community. They just believe in the mission of God and they believe in bringing the gospel of Jesus to the city of Seattle. And they don't benefit in any way. They just give to that mission. 93 individuals. And so we, we want to, as a community, celebrate that, give thanks to God that that many people have believed in what we're doing and have come alongside of us and and, uh, and as we make this transition, that's one of the things you always want to do when you transition is to celebrate where you've come from and to look forward about where are we going. So this is going to be something of a challenge for us. It's going to be a new thing that we have to undertake together as a community. Uh, but I'm incredibly optimistic. I, I believe that we are going to have no problem in becoming this generous community um, you know, so, sometimes, and I hear, I hear this all the time because we're such a young church, sometimes the generation that most of us are a part of, and I'm a part of it too, the millennial generation, we kind of get a bad rap, you know. We're not really known as the generous generation. We tend to be a little bit, uh, well, people tend to badmouth us a little bit. Uh, they tend to think that we're maybe a little bit lazy, maybe a little bit entitled, these are some of the words that you've maybe heard or people joke about. But I'm a millennial, and I, and I know many of you, and I know many others in this generation, and I know that, I, that we're not an ungenerous people. I, th I think what it is for us is that we need to be convinced. We need to be shown what our generosity is going toward. And, and that's really my job and, and Ryan's job as pastors to, to cast vision for us about why do uh, we do this? Why do we give of our resources financially and otherwise to the mission of God and in particular to the local church in, in that mission? So that's part of our job. We want to come alongside and answer that question uh, for you. And that, that could be um, through sermons and, and, and definitely it can be through one-on-one -on -one coffee as we try to figure out, well, why should we be generous to this? It's, it's a message that I don't get sick of talking about. Uh, I didn't get sick of talking about it when we were raising the money to start the church, and I'm, I'm not going to get sick of talking about it as we continue to transition into being internally self-sufficient. 
um, because it's just talking about the mission of God. And it's talking about the power of the gospel. And it's talking about it's the only thing that can change our city. It's the only thing that can transform a human being. Um, and God wants to do all those things, and we want to be a part of that. And the local church is the primary vehicle that God has chosen uh, to accomplish his mission in the world. And so, you know, that's part of my job. I, as we've been going through the series, at times I feel a bit remorseful that I haven't done a better job of explaining how our finances are tied to following Jesus because uh, it's such an important part of who we are. Everything that we do tends to be tied in some way to money and to not talk about it is really to put ourselves at a deficit when we're trying to let our hearts be transformed by the power of God and the Spirit of God and the life-giving message of the gospel. So for all those reasons, uh, we've decided to talk about it and I'm excited to talk about it and uh, if, you know, you've come to church and you're like, man, they're talking about money. Churches always talk about money. Uh, as I just said, we've <laughs> done a bad job of talking about this. This is really the first time we've, we've taken a really serious look about what, is it, what does it look like to cultivate a heart of generosity. And I really believe that if we do this, especially being a church plant, especially, um, you know, I hear it when I, when I sit in meetings with older pastors and things, um, they believe that the church is in trouble because the next generation has all these stigmas about it. I believe that we have an opportunity to lead the way as a young, urban church plant, that we can lead the, the way both for other Christians and for those that are not yet Christians in learning what it, lo- what it means to be a truly generous person. And, and we'll do that by starting to work together and, 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 and learn together about how do we actually become generous because you know what we live in a very expensive city nobody expects us to be generous we're the ungenerous generation nobody expects us to be generous Uh, we all have lots of student debt nobody expects us to be generous but if we start living right now in this season of our life in this moment of our life a generous life that will change the way everyone views generosity because we have a unique ability to actually live out the call to sacrificial giving that Ryan talked about, to the glory of God, to surprise people. And I think through that, maybe even as we go on from this church and this city into other places to really surprise people with what God can truly do as, as we press into these important questions together, the way our hearts will be transformed as we, as we become holistically on mission for Jesus. So that's kind of our hope, that's our dream, Uh, that's what we've been talking about these last three weeks. Um, I hope you've been praying about this, talking to God about this, and if you have, I'm just very, very thankful that you've chosen to participate in this process, because ultimately this is a personal discussion between you and God, and it's one of the ways that he really reaches in and starts to communicate at the heart level with you you as you begin to ask him this question. So we're going to do it. We're going to become financially self-sufficient. It's going to be glorious. And, and, and I really believe that we have a very modest budget. Uh, Ryan talked last week. I have some gifts of frugality that have been passed down through the generations. And, you know, we have a modest budget. And I believe that we'll even surpass our budget so that we can enter into new areas of ministry and mission that, that we just can't go to right now. 
because we don't have the resources for it. So I think, I think this is all going to happen. Uh, we're going to exceed even our budget goals in 2018, uh, and, we're, and we're just going to thrive. And this is going to happen in a couple ways. Those not yet giving are going to start giving. Those that have been sporadic in their giving will become consistent monthly givers to the mission of God. And then consistent givers are going to prayerfully consider what increasing their monthly giving looks like. And then, uh, maybe most of all, we are going to ask new people to join us in our mission in this city. We're going to add new people to this body of believers who are joined together for a shared mission. The team is going to get bigger. The team is going to become robust because we can't do it alone. This isn't just about all of us giving more. It's about inviting others into what we're doing because I think what we're doing uh, has been proven that God is a part of it, that God wants to do it. And so we invite people into that. So people that already love Jesus and love his mission but just haven't found a local church mission to be a part of, that haven't found the opportunity to truly take ownership, we're going to invite people into that. Maybe it's even people that you've invited before that haven't been able to respond. Maybe it's because we meet in the evenings and that's challenging for them. I would ask you in this new year, ask them again to join our mission if they are not meaningfully connected to mission through the local church. Every Christian should be meaningfully connected to God's mission through a local church. And if they're not, invite them to be a part of this mission through the local church, okay? And then it's going to be people that don't yet know and love Jesus and can't fathom right now, if you brought them in the room, why giving anything to the mission of God would make any sense. And you know what? We're going to tell them about Jesus. We're going to introduce them to the gospel of Jesus. We're going to ask them to consider with us this man that changed the world. And you know what? They're going to come to realize that it's true, that he's true, that everything he said was true, that what he claimed to be is true, that he's the son of God, that he's the savior, that he's the Messiah, and that he's bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And they're going to come and they're going to bow their knee before Jesus, and then we're going to teach them what it looks like to give their whole life they're going to join our mission. So the body's going to grow. We're going to do this together. And we're going to thrive. That's really the vision going forward. The next three years is really about thriving. Now that we're established, God is going to continue uh, to multiply his work through this community. I'm so excited about this. And one of the huge ways is by learning what Jesus has to say about this important topic of money. I hope you're excited with me. I hope, I hope this doesn't feel scary to you. If you're not yet a Christian and, in, and you're in the room, some of, some of the things that we'll say about giving, they don't really apply to you yet because first you need to figure out who is Jesus. You can't give your way to heaven. You can't give your way to God's favor. Um, <laughs> my son Grayson is in a real daddy phase right now. He really wants my love and my affection and and I got home from the football game today, and the, the whole day at the football game, he was running on the field wanting to play and all this stuff. And I get home, and he's eating some chips, and he just starts offering me chips. In fact, he doesn't even eat any of his own chips. He's just giving me every chip. He's like, Daddy, I eat it. He gives me another one. I'm like, Grayson, you don't have to give me your chips to get my love. That's not how it works. But I think sometimes we think that's how it works with God. That's not how it works. So if you're not yet a Christian, I think you'll learn a lot about who Jesus was and about the generosity that he calls all people to, that he is the model of generosity, 
Uh, but we're not asking you to give right now. We want you to, to come and experience and consider Jesus and the safety of this place until you know that he is who he said he was. And then if you're newer to Sedaris, take a look. Ask yourself a really hard question. Is this where God wants me to invest in his mission? Is this the place? And if you decide that this isn't the place, I'm going to challenge you. Don't just hop around from one place to another. Find a place where you can invest your time, your talent, and your money in the mission of the local church to this city. God needs you to be a part of a local church to be meaningfully invested in every way because he loves the city and he wants to see the city transformed by the gospel. So as, as, as we do this together, thank you, thank you, thank you uh, for not walking out, for coming the last three weeks, for maybe if you haven't been able to come, listening to the last three sermons online so you can start to get a robust understanding of what Jesus has to say about this topic. This is an all-community conversation this isn't just for a few of us. It's for all of those who call Sedaris home. So thank you. Thank you. So now I want you to open up your Bibles and we'll look at the story for today, which is in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. And it's a story you may or may not have heard of before. Uh, and as you're turning there, if you, if you don't have a Bible, there should be Bibles in the seat back in front of you. You can look it up online. Just Google Mark 12. Uh, but before we get there, let me, let me just say this, right, about money. It's kind of a funny thing, right? In fact, let me see if I've got, I think I've got some money in my pocket here. Let me just show you this, this funny thing. It has so much power. Ooh, that's a 20. This thing has incredible power, right? I mean, this is an interesting phenomenon that this little flimsy piece of nothing has so much power. Even, even as I bring it out, I can just see some of y'all. Just, I wonder if he's going to drop it, you know, grab it. It's just this little bill, and in a sense it's nothing, but the U.S. government has, has said that it's something. But they can also just change it at any time. They can print more of it. They can decide to change what it represents. We're sort of utilizing this bill as something to help us conduct life. We use it for our well-being, for our day-to-day life. But we're really using it at the pleasure of the kings and queens of our government. They really get to tell us what it means and, and in a sense, get to tell us what to do with it. And over the years, it has changed, right? Over the years, what this represents, what this means, has changed a lot. And my grandfather always used to told, tell this story uh, about when he was a kid, he'd take 10 cents down to the local burger shop, and with 10 cents, he could buy 10 hamburgers. And he'd do this all the time, and he'd come back. Uh, but sure enough, every time he told this story, he'd also tell about that one time that he got back to his house, and there were only nine hamburgers in his bag. He'd been robbed. This is the same grandfather that taught me how to make a dollar count. But now I can't even buy one hamburger with that 10 cents. In fact, I can't even buy a stick of gum. It's changed. What that coin represents changed. And so these bills, these coins that are issued by the U.S. government, they're backed by the government, so they represent something more than the thing in itself because they leverage the power 
and the wealth of the government that issues them. And so we, therefore, take advantage of this for our good. And really what I call this is, this is a, this, this, these coins have transcendent symbolism. We might even say that the coinage has a kind of beauty to it, right? Because of that transcendent symbolism. Because it represents the power of the government that's behind it. So it has this beauty, and people always crave beauty, and they always crave power. And so then we do silly things with coinage, right? Some people, in a very serious way, collect coins. Others, in more silly ways, they decorate with money. Have you ever seen this? I had this uh, Irish pub that I used to go to down in Pensacola, Florida, when I'd visit my best friend Steve, who was a Marine, and he was in flight training school down there. It, w- it was a great little Irish pub, but on the walls uh, were hundreds of thousands of dollars, because people could come into the restaurant and pin the dollar bill on the wall, and this had happened for years and years and years, so all the ceilings were covered with money, all the walls were covered with money. Money was the decoration. And in fact, the food wasn't that great, but it was a pretty cool atmosphere. Money all over the place. This was a good old Navy bar. <laughs> I texted my friend Steve because I forgot the name of it. It's called McGuire's Irish Pub. And he said, yeah, they had this green drink that tasted like orange juice and gasoline. But it's a good old Navy bar, okay? So this is the kind of things that we like. Good times, living large in Pensacola with this weird phenomenon of decorating your restaurant with the color of money. Other times we celebrate money with songs. In fact, I'll tell you a quick little story here about uh, one of the greatest things that I ever did. You may have heard of the song Make It Rain by Fat Joe and Lil Wayne, which is just a funny thing to say together. So Fat Joe and Little, they came up with this, make it rain. Do you know what making it rain is? You take dollar bills and you feather them in the air and they rain down. It's a great song of celebration. Almost won a Grammy, which is wild. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyhow, this song came out like the year that I transitioned out of my former profession, which was public accounting. I was a big-time CPA, living in Dallas at the time. Uh, and, and God was not so gently nudging me out into the life of vocational ministry. And I, I didn't quite know it at the time, but I kind of felt like I was going to go into a job that probably didn't pay as well as, a, as the career of a CPA. And so, like I said, I'm always forward thinking, I'm always thinking about this. I'm like, I need to throw myself a retirement party because I'll probably never get to retire again. And so I want to have a retirement party. So I was 26 years old. I decided to throw myself a retirement party. Uh, but I also realized, because I knew that, you know, money was going to be tight as I figured out what next to do, that I couldn't pay for this whole party myself. Now, this was before the time of Venmo and PayPal and whatnot. So, you know, how do you collect maybe a small fee to come to this party? Just kind of help pay for the drinks and the food and whatnot. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to throw myself a make it rain party. You ever been to one of these? Probably not, because I invented it, and I only retired once. So this is how the Make It Rain party works. I said, you know what, Uh, just to help pay for things, because I'm retiring and not sure what my next job's going to be, could you just bring five bucks to help pay for everything? 
And I said, but, but here's the thing, bring it in ones. <laughs> and so I told my friends, bring it in ones. And lots of people came, lots of people brought $5 and $1 bills. And then at the right moment in the party, we turn on Little Wayne and Fat Joe, and I said, let's make it rain. <laughs> the people just throwing their bills up in the air, making it rain, quite a celebration. Um, and then I, of course, collected all the cash that was on the ground, and, you know, it was a zero-sum game. So life is good, retired, but we do these weird things with money. We collect it, we decorate with it, we even celebrate in songs with it. Money is this really funny, interesting thing. Now, is this just nostalgic rantings of a former CPA? Maybe, but there's a point here. I'm trying to set up, as we read this story, the most famous coin in all of human history. We're going to read about the most famous coin in all of human history. And now here's the interesting part of this coin. If you had this coin, say, say you, just do a thought experiment, say you had this coin in your possession right now, the exact coin, you could not walk in and buy a hamburger, let alone 10 hamburgers at your favorite hamburger shop. You couldn't. It has, it has sort of no economic value in our system right now because you know what? It has, a, has the face of Caesar. And guess what? Caesar's long dead, along with his entire empire, Six feet under God's green earth. But in another sense, this coin would be the most valuable coin in existence if you had it. And you know what? Governments around the world would pay hundreds of millions of dollars to buy that coin from you so that they could put it in their museum. And you want to know why? Because that coin touched the hand of a man named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. He was a carpenter from a podunk town called Nazareth and he only made it into his 30s. You see the power of that? It has nothing to do that Caesar's face is on it and everything to do with the fact that a carpenter named Jesus touched it. Just, just, just ponder that for a sec. What, what in the world? Who was this man who modern governments would bow down that it touched his hand? That doesn't blow your mind. You're not thinking hard enough. That's the power of the hand of Jesus. This is the same man that we've been talking about through this whole series in the Gospel of Mark, a, a, a series we're calling The Most Important Question Ever Asked. We're talking about this, this most important que question ever asked, and it's a question that Jesus asked of his disciples while he was living, and I believe that he asks each of us personally the same question, and this is what Jesus asks us, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? With these thoughts in mind, let's read the story of this famous coin. Mark 12, starting in verse 13, says this. And they sent him, that's Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Hey teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. 
Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus then said, Render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. It's important to understand the context of what's going on here. There were these religious leaders, and Ryan talked about this last week. Jesus had, come, Jesus had been teaching all, we've kind of fast forward in the gospel, Jesus has been teaching all over Israel, people are coming to him, he's performing miracles, uh, and he's just recently come into the city at the most important time uh, for the most important festival of the year for the Jews, and he's come riding on a donkey, and people are, are calling him the Messiah, Hosanna, and there's this group of religious uh, leaders, those in power, Uh, who are scared of Jesus. And so they're trying, and they've been trying for a while, to knock him off his block, to sort of tear him apart, to sort of devalue him in the eyes of the people, to show that he's not truly who he said he was. And so here's another attempt. They send two groups of people to him. One is from the Pharisees. or These are the people that are very uh, strict on the law of God. And then the Herodians, these would be the people that were kind of in tight with the political leaders of the day. So they sort of come from both angles, and and they try to trap Jesus um, in what we could call uh, horns of a dilemma. So they ask him this question, what should you do? Knowing that there'll be a group of people that if Jesus says, pay to Caesar the tax, those people will get very upset because... They believed that the tax shouldn't be paid to Caesar because he was not their rightful Lord. Then there's another group. That's the Romans, who if Jesus says, don't pay to Rome what is Rome's, they'll start to view Jesus as something of an instigator of the people. And so they might come after him. And so there's this, the horns of the dilemma. And Jesus is going to just marvelously escape right through the center of these two horns. And Jesus is... is Not just being clever, though. He's not just saying what needs to be said to escape losing the favor of the people or the favor of Rome. He's he's both escaping from the dilemma, the trap that they're trying to put, put him in, and he's speaking true words. Because Jesus doesn't just say things to say things. So what does he say here about Caesar and God? But what he says is 100% true. So what is it that he's trying to say? How should we process this? And this is what Jesus says. He says, whose image is on the coin? Well, it's Caesar's. Well, then you should give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and you should give to God what is God's. First, let's ask, what is Caesar's? Well, it's literally the coinage of the day. That's why Jesus says whose face is on it. Because nobody could deny that Caesar, the Roman government, is the one that has created these coins, issued these coins, and has the power and influence behind the coins to make sure that what that represents, the value it represents, remains the same. Now a denarius was like a day's wage. So you'd go and you'd be a day laborer, 
and you'd work on somebody's farm and you'd get one denarius. So that was the value of the coin. But it's something that Rome has created and Rome protects its value and Rome is the only reason that it means anything. And you know what? The Jewish people were, were happy to use this currency created by Rome. It helped them in business. It helped them do foreign investments. It helped them trade with others from other territories. It was quite helpful for business, and so they were happy to use the coins. Moreover, there were other things that Caesar had given to the people for their own pleasure, their own thriving. He'd given them things like roads and buildings, all things that helped. So in a real sense, Caesar is sovereign Lord over all those things that he's given to the Jewish people. And Jesus is implying, and the Bible teaches in multiple other places, that it's God himself who has granted Caesar the privilege to rule in this way. So let's look at one of those passages. Romans 13 says this. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And so there's this rich biblical tradition of, of God saying, yes, I have allowed these governing authorities to be over you and to, in a sense, rule on a lesser level their sovereign ownership of the things that they've given. Now, although this is often lamentable as Christians, this doesn't mean that we just take it joyfully all the time. But we are under the command of Christ to be subject to the laws of the land in which we live. Up to the point in which those laws force us to break a command of God's law. Which we'll see in a moment is the overarching law in which we must consult. So paying taxes to Caesars, well, it's not a sin. It doesn't go against the law of God. And so even though it may be lamentable, Jesus is telling these people that they should pay the tax. Even if they think it's not equitable, even if they think it's unjust, even if they think that it advantages one group over the other, even if they don't like the way that Rome is spending that money, all of those things, Jesus says, you know what? This is part of how you patiently wait for the kingdom of God to come. But he does say you have two choices. These are your two choices. You can pay the tax or you can find new king and country. Now, hold on all you revolutionaries. He's not saying assassinate Caesar or name your most unpopular political figure. He's not saying that. He's basically saying that as long as you live in this land and you enjoy the benefits of this government, you need to pay your taxes. So, why is this? Why should we not revolt? Why should we not fight back? Well, there was actually a group in Jesus' day who wanted to do that. They were known as the Zealots, and they were always trying to overthrow Rome, always trying to stir up revolution. Some people thought Jesus was a Zealot, but he time and time again said, this is not what I came to do. So why don't we do that? Here's the principle. 
This is how it always works in God's created order. It goes something like this. That which you accept from a sovereign henceforth has command over your use of that thing. That which you accept from a sovereign, being somebody over and above you, henceforth that, that sovereign has command over your use of that thing. That's the principle that you see again and again and again in Scripture. You give me an illustration because it happens at every level of our lives. Say you're 16 years old and your dad says, hey, I'm going to let you use my car. And this is a great thing, right? This is joyful for a teenager to have use of dad's car. And so if you use his car, you also have to follow his rules for the usage of that car, right? And so if dad says, hey, I need you every Tuesday to drive me to yoga class, this is part of the stipulation of using my car, then you know what? You do it. Now, you might lament the fact that you got to drop your dad off at yoga class. That could be an awkward thing for a young person. (laughs) This is not a true story, by the way. This is just something uh, that I thought would be funny. Okay, but (laughs) you're dropping him off. And uh, you know what? He also says there's penalties for breaking the rules of using this car. Really, really what I'm saying is you're driving at the pleasure of the king, your dad. Or you don't drive at all. You drive at the pleasure of me or you don't drive at all. Now sure, if you have the means and the moxie to go buy your own car, buy your own insurance, live in your own house as a 16-year-old, then by all means you won't have to drive your dad to yoga class. You can say, Dad, take your bike. I'm autonomous. I'm sovereign over my own car, my own life, and my own house. But most 16-year-olds don't have that moxie. So you see the principle? The Roman emperor has let the Jewish people use his coinage to conduct their economic affairs underneath his protection and the powerful backing that that currency represents within land that he technically owns because he won it in a war, even though he may have taken that by unrighteous means, the reality is there. And so, you do with that coinage what the sovereign says. That's part of the deal. Unless you want to start your own country, create your own coinage on your own land, this is the way it works. Let me just say this, just because some of your minds might have gone here, but with unjust taxation of any kind, whether it's here in Rome or, or in our current society, what I'm not saying is that there's not times to protest, not times to, to hope and to pray for and to vote for better systems and, and better politicians uh, and better leaders of the people. That, that's perfectly fine. The point is just that While you wait for that to happen, and it may or may not happen, God tells you, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You live in this country. These are the rules. Be a good citizen. Even as you pray and maybe even protest against those things. So let's ask the second question then. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and then what does he say? Give to God what is God's. And how do you come to that answer? Well, you come to it exactly the same way as you came to the first answer. What is Caesar's? It's all those things 
which he has given. What is God's? Well, it's every single thing that God in his sovereignty has given to us for our benefit. And then we ask the second question. Okay, what is he commanding of us? What sort of practices of usage is he instructing to us surrounding these things to which he has given? So we come to the same answer in the same way that we came to the question of Caesar. So what has God given to us? The answer is literally everything. There is not one good thing in our life that God is not responsible for. God has created the land that we walk on and that we work to make our living and to enjoy. He's created the air that we breathe and literally given us the lungs to breathe it. He's created each of our siblings, each of our parents, each of our friends, each of our employees, each of our spouses, each of our children, each of our grandchildren. And He gives them to us to steward and to enjoy. And therefore, He has sovereign right to instruct us how best to use these things. And the list goes on and it goes on. The Lord is God. He gave us everything. And so, He is going to tell us how to best use it. And He's going to tell us that if we use it contrary to his desire, that there will be consequence and there will be punishment. Now, if you don't want to use the things God's given to you, by all means. But if it's everything, what is there left? So that really only leaves us one potential option which is to start to ask the question of what has he instructed us to do with these things? It goes something like this. How should I do this friendship? The answer, as you please, unless God has instructed you otherwise. How should I do, uh, treat my subordinates at work? As you please, unless God has instructed you to do otherwise. How should you respond to your parents? As you please, unless God has instructed you otherwise. What do you do with your, how do you love your spouse? As you please, unless God has instructed you otherwise. How should you live out your sexual practices? As you please, unless God has instructed you otherwise. How should you spend and use your money? As you please, unless God has instructed you otherwise. This is literally how it goes for every single part of our life. You know, you know what I'm saying here is that God has instructed us in each and every one of these areas as how to live. And we just have to pause for a second. And we just have to sort of bluntly say what is so self-evident, which is nobody lives this way. No human being lives this way. No human being says, as I please, unless God has instructed otherwise, then goes and figures out what God has instructed and changes the way they live. And the reason that no human being naturally does this is because this thing that the Bible calls sin, 
And it started at the very beginning of the story of humanity in which God puts Adam and Eve in this perfect creation. He gives them all these good gifts, but he instructs them on how to use them. And they say, wait a minute. What if I desire? What if I please to do otherwise? Did he really say that? And they go and they do otherwise. And we've been doing it ever since. This is just another way to to call sin what it is is that we don't seek the instruction of God in using the things that he's given to us. We do as we please. But they're not ours to do whatever we want with. It's the constant struggle of our heart. And and you see, Jesus knows this. He knows that's the primary issue going on with these people that are trying to entrap him that are trying to steal away his authority, steal away his favor with the people, get him in trouble with Rome. He knows that the primary issue of their heart is not him, but it's what he represents, which is the rule and the reign of God in their lives. And so he's using this pattern that's so easy to see when we think about taxation and we think about Caesar It's so easy to see how we do the same thing with God. So Jesus is not pro-Caesar. He's pro-God. And he realizes that that same bent of the heart that hates to submit to Caesar is the same heart that hates to submit to God himself. So this is our problem. A rebellious heart, this sinful nature that affects all of our relationships, our friendships, our marriages, our political alignments, all, all of this, it's all bent And it's all bent because it's reflecting the bent we have in our relationship with our sovereign creator God. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you know what? You have a hard time giving to Caesar what's Caesar's because you have a hard time giving to God what is God's. And he says, you know know that image on the coin of Caesar? And, And remember, he's talking to the religious people of the temple These these are the the most aware of what the Bible says. And you know what he's saying is, haven't you ever heard another place where, where where God talks about an image? And he's referring to Genesis 1 and 2, where God says, and then I created man and woman in my image. And he's saying, you see, Your life and everything in it belongs to God, but yet your heart doesn't want to give it. Just like you don't want to give that tax to Caesar. Jesus is obviously clever and brilliant and he escapes through the horns of the dilemma, but he, more importantly, exposes the small-mindedness of those who try to entrap him. And this is always what we want to do with God. We always want to find a loophole. We always want to get ourselves off the hook. But Jesus says, stop thinking just about money. Think about the bigger picture, which is that you have a hard time giving anybody control of your life. But it's God's life to instruct you how to live And there are consequences if you don't. 
a powerful, powerful story. And it's so easy to, to say, well, that's just them. That's just those Jewish leaders then. But if we're really, really honest, we all struggle with this. We all struggle to give God what is God's. And the way that we start to unravel this problem that we have is by first seeing what God has given to us. Because if we don't realize that it's everything, then we'll start to pick and choose the things that we want to give back to Him. Because we think, well, I got this for myself, so I'm not going to give this to God. Well, yeah, he sort of got me off on the right track, but it was really my hard work that got me to this point. So I'll give him what he helped me to start, but not what I completed. No, we have to begin to see that every good gift that we have, everything that we love, every, everything that brings us joy and excitement, that's all from God. And then we start to have to ask the question, has God instructed me how to use that which he's given to me? Has he commanded something of my life? These are the questions that we have to ask. And if we're honest, money is one of the hardest things to give up. It is for me. It's one of the hardest things to lay down at the feet of Jesus. And that's why it's the most important thing to learn how to surrender because it's most closely connected to our heart. Everything in our society has coinage attached to it, unlike any other time in human history. Think, think about this for a second. You know, back in the day, you're getting new furniture, and, and so you'd give away your old furniture. Now, I'm going to go make five bucks by selling my old lamp on Craigslist. Everything has coinage attached to it. You know, back in the day, I had a car and I had some spare time, so maybe I'd use that to give a friend or even a stranger a ride. Now, that car and that, coin, or, and that spare time, that equals cash through the technology of Uber and Lyft. You know, back in the day, I, ha I had this gift of crafting. It wasn't my full-time job, but, but I had this gift of it. And I'd maybe use it to bless people. But now, I'd go make a little money on the side through Etsy. Everything is attached in our society to coinage. Because everything can be turned into money. Literal dollar bills or digital dollar bills. It's, it's all the same. And Jesus tells us that, that if we give that up, if we, if we hold it with an open hand, we'll experience a joy like He experienced when He gave up His life for us. Yes, it can be painful. Yes, Jesus hanging on the cross was the most painful moment that any human being has ever experienced in the history of mankind and ever will. Physical and spiritual emotional, but it was also, Jesus says, the greatest moment of joy that he gave up his life for his friends. 
Return with me to the thought experiment. Say you had this literal coin that Jesus held as he was telling this story. Just, just think about that. He held this coin, and you now have it in your possession. And, and as we said, this is the most famous coin in human history, and it would be the most valuable coin for any museum around the world. You, you would be rich. But in reality, we all have this kind of value. Because God the Father has given to us God the Son, Jesus Christ. And through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, God has literally reached out His hand, stretched out the hand of Jesus, and said, grab hold of that hand. And we can, by faith, if we believe that Jesus died for our sin and that He rose from the grave, we, by faith, can grab hold of that same hand that makes that coin so valuable. Everything that he touches, everything that he touches is given new life. And it's not the kind of life that dies out after your term ends or your empire fails. The kind of power that Jesus has, the power of his touch, the power behind the currency, which is his presence in your life, this is an eternal kind of value. And every single person that by faith trusts in Jesus, grabs hold of his outstretched hand, becomes like this coin. Eternally valuable, given the inheritance of the kingdom of God, given life eternal, which is so much more valuable than anything else. And as you give it all away, your time, your skills, your energy, and your money, he begins to touch that as well and make that invaluable. Make that eternal. Whereas if you hold on to it, it just dies with you. That is the principle that you see again and again and again in the life of Jesus. So that's what you have to ask. What parts of my life am I going to let the eternal, powerful, almighty, resurrection hand of Jesus touch? Because he will make it infinitely valuable. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you've given us good gifts, that you don't hold back from us, even when we misuse gifts that you've given to us. We see that you give gifts to all people. That is your common grace. It rains on the just and the unjust. All peoples get to use your land, your air. You've given us all lungs. God, help us as followers of Jesus to know how to use the things you've given us best. Give us instruction. Give us a desire to know. Tear apart the sinful flesh that clings to these things and help us to let you touch them. Every aspect of our life that you might give it new resurrected life.
That's our hope, that's our prayer for this community and for us as individuals. In Jesus' name, amen. We, we realize that as a part of this process of learning what it means to give things away to Jesus, that it can, can be challenging. It can be really challenging. In, fa- in fact, what does it look like when it says give to God's what is God's? How do we know what is God's and how to give, particularly around this idea of money? Well, we realized this, and we realized that there was a time in our lives where somebody had to teach us this, that we weren't even sure how to understand Scripture sometimes, so we printed off a little four-page, or we wrote a little four-page explanation of how Christians should think about giving, particularly in the context of the local church and, and generally to the mission of God. And so we hope this is, hope this is valuable for you. Um, as you press into these questions, we just hope that it, that it starts to show itself. This takes some time, and you'll continue to grow in what it looks like to give. And so we wanted to give you this, so you can pick those up on the table in the back. But ultimately, and, and, and most importantly, we give in response to understanding the grace of God, which we come and celebrate every week by celebrating the bread and the cup.